Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Fashion Unzipped, in association with Tag Heuer, Swiss avant-garde since 1860. When I tell people I'm a fashion editor, the first question anyone ever asks is, do you get to keep the clothes? And the second question is, how did you get that job? You're listening to Fashion Unzipped. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Charlie Gowans-Eglinton. And with me in the studio today are Lisa Armstrong, head of fashion at The Telegraph, and Emily Cronin, senior fashion editor, who has brought with her baby Leo. So if you hear any gurgles... (laughs) That's because Emily is currently on maternity leave and we've lured her back into the office to talk to us. And Leo really wants to get into audio. (laughs) Today we're going to be answering that second question. How do you get a job in fashion journalism? So coming up, how to get in. So my number one thing that I always say to people is actually don't study fashion. I majored in political science and I also studied Arabic and photography. I studied fashion. How to get a raise once you're in. If you think you're worth it and you present a good case, do not be afraid to ask for a raise. And what a day in fashion is really like. I had one stylist who we weren't allowed to eat on set. So let's begin with what we do now. Lisa, what does the head of fashion at The Telegraph do? Oh, she works incredibly hard. I I think the great thing about my job, I've been doing it for a very, very long time on various publications, is that it's just so varied. So, you know, one day I'm interviewing Claire Waite Keller, the next day I'm interviewing Carol Middleton, or I might be at a show, or I might be touring a factory in China, or I might be listening to um, Japanese musicians in the middle of a forest on a Japanese island on a trip to write about the Hermes Apple Watch. Or I could be doing a sociological piece. I've written about sport through the lens of fashion. I've written about politics many times through the lens of fashion. There isn't a topic, a subject that fashion doesn't overlap with because it's looking at people. It's the psychology of people. What we wear is how we want to present ourselves and sometimes unwittingly how we don't want to present ourselves, but we are presenting ourselves. I am so lucky that I fell into this this line of work. It's, it's just endlessly rewarding and interesting. And what's your kind of potted work history? I pretty much 
did fall into sometimes when people ask me about this I think well mine it's not relevant it's so long ago and it really wasn't typical but then I think actually there is no typical way into fashion so I'm going to give it to you okay I studied French and English literature at university so my number one thing that I always say to people is actually don't study fashion get as broad an education as you can I then did a journalist postgraduate course at City University because frankly I wasn't fit to do anything else I, I, I wanted to be a journalist but never thought I could be a journalist I thought oh, I'll go and work in a bank because that's what all my friends were doing you know going to work in the city obviously no one in the city wanted to employ me so I got onto this journalism course and um, wasn't particularly good actually on it I applied to everything going uh, in those days it was there were no online places to apply for jobs it was all done at the Guardian newspaper every Monday media uh, section would come out and there'd be pages and pages of classified ads for jobs applied to everything I'm not kidding Bricklayers Weekly Baker's Monthly I applied <laughs> didn't get anywhere and then luckily got uh, an interview on a magazine called Fitness which was owned by Richard Desmond, who owned a load of sort of soft porn magazines. <laughs> Fitness was the jewel in his crown. And thus it was, your heroine came to be sitting <laughs> on the fitness table. There were three of us on that magazine, which was brilliant. And next to us was the penthouse uh, desk and the forum, all these sort of erotic magazines. So that's my number two thing I would say to people. Do not be snooty about where you go to work because the smaller the outfit, the more you're going to get to do, which is brilliant. Anyway, stayed at fitness for about nine months, then got a job on Elle as it was just setting up. So that tells you how old I am. It's a long time ago. Elle was the hottest magazine. I couldn't believe that I they'd seen my work and I'd got a job on it. Then went quickly to Vogue. But I was always working in features. But while I was at Vogue, I kind of realized, well, if I'm going to work on these fashions ma fashion magazines, I should be in the fashion bit because that's the heart of them. And also, by then, I discovered fashion and realized how amazing it was. And a role came up in fashion. So I went to work on fashion. Then I went to work on newspapers because newspapers was really where I wanted to be. The easiest way to get on newspapers in those days was if you had a specialism. And I thought, well, fashion is a specialism. And, and, and it worked pretty much like clockwork actually I have to say because I was you know I was headhunted from Vogue to go and be the fashion editor of the Independent age 27 or 28 very little experience I don't think they realized how little experience I had and so I did that then the Times then the Telegraph. Was that first job was that a proper job or did you intern at all? So I don't think there were internships in my day. Cheeky question, but do you remember how I much do you got remember £6,000 a year. And you could just about live on that, but not really. And I remember six months in, I said to a very nice mentor in the company, because Richard Desmond was terrifying. I, I said, I need to get more money. This is ridiculous. I can barely afford the, the, the tube fares. And he said, well, don't ask Richard. Leave it to me. Leave it to me. I, I, I don't ask Richard. And so two or three weeks went past and I didn't hear anything. And I thought, sod this. I'm going to ask Richard, what's the worst he can do? Okay, this is my third piece of advice. If you think you're worth it and you present a good case, do not be afraid to ask for a raise. I got a 500 pound raise, which on 6,000 a year is a pretty good percentage. It's almost 10%. So yeah, that was my first salary. But then when I went to L nine months later, I doubled it. I do remember once at Vogue saying to the editor in my, in my annual review, oh, it's not about the money. And as soon as those words were out of my mouth, I thought, what am I saying? Of course it's about the money. I don't come from a rich family. It's one of the main complaints of our yeah. trolls and, 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 in our comments section as well. It was of it. nepotism and, oh. you know, Charlie, what's it, what's it? I'm sure you, you know, I think we all 
take it on the on yeah. the chin, don't well, we? Especially because I didn't go to private school and um, nor did I. Charlie, what's it? What's it? Just, just sounds <laughs> like she's from the south of England. Actually, I think most so. of us didn't go to private school. <laughs> no, it is so much harder now because there are so many unpaid internships. We don't do that at the Telegraph. If you haven't got a floor you can sleep on in London, if you haven't got mum and dad, bank of mum and dad, or you haven't got some second cousin twice removed, it's closed. And it's not good because the problem with this industry is it presents as very glamorous and lots of money flowing. You know, we all know there's so much smoke and mirrors and they're doing these fashion shows. They're having these parties. It's all sponsored. They're calling in lots of favours. And a lot of the people who work for them work free. A lot of what you said resonated with my experience, including the salary, although decades later, my, my starting salary was similarly low. And <laughs> I hope it wasn't 6000 No, it was, it was whatever minimum wage was. <laughs> When I started out, I remember I had a weekend and an evening job. I tutored. I did like SAT and GMAT and GRE test prep, which is basically like acting in front of a crowd of of people, you know, who thought that I could help them get into Harvard Business School. And it was great, although I did realize at one point that I'd worked something like 72 days in a row. It was actually a great job because I, they sent me to teach weekend courses in places like Dublin and Milan and Amsterdam. And it was actually on one of those weekend courses in Milan. I I had some free time and went to see an Avedon exhibition, which I ended up writing about for the Vogue talent competition. And that ended up being my way into fashion magazines. So what did you study, Emily? I also did not do anything relevant. And I think that was unintentionally a good choice. I majored in political science and I also studied Arabic and photography. But in the U.S., it's not so, it's not that you're on a course and that's all that you do. You can you can dabble a lot. And I also was on the student board of the museum, and I I edited the magazine, and then I had the opportunity to move to London again, very unplanned, by falling in love with an Englishman and figuring let's try to be on the same continent for once. Um, <laughs> and I'd had great hard news internships. I'd, I'd interned at the Associated Press actually in London, ended up covering the 7-7 bombing, you know, on the wow. site of, yeah, that, that summer. That's because all of the real reporters were at the G8 mm, in Scotland. Mm. And I'd worked for CNN. And I, I thought, you know, surely I have a, I have a good university degree. I've, I've got these internships. I'll get a job in London. And I think it took 48 hours for the first, you know, emotional meltdown. Turns out no one cared about my university degree. And I didn't know anyone, and I thought I'd done my internship, so I should only do a job. And by the time I backed down from that, the only internship I could get was on the markets desk at the Financial Times. And on the second day, Northern Rock applied to the Bank of England for liquidity support. The credit crunch was off with a bang. I learned all about finance on CNBC's flagship morning news program. So I was in live TV, which it was unscripted live TV about finance and thoroughly just cemented my conviction that I wanted to be writing about non-finance topics for a newspaper or magazine, preferably culture or fashion. Finally, the job that I was sure should be mine came up as features assistant on Harper's Bazaar. And I applied and I sent, you know, my university like cuts pack and and kept waiting for the interview where I knew I would dazzle them and obviously get the job. And it never came. (laughs) (laughs) Mule headed person that I am, after I didn't get the job, I basically badgered the features editor into meeting me for coffee and kind of asked her like, well, what happened? Why didn't I even get an interview? She was very kind and very patient. Now I'm mortified. Now I think you knew nothing taking up this woman's time. She said, well, have you heard of the Vogue talent contest? The person we hired won that last year. Maybe you should enter. I went home and looked it up. That's Leo. (laughs) The deadline was two days later. So I think I took a sick day and just wrote, wrote, wrote and sent it in and won. And then sent that features editor a bouquet of flowers. 
<laughs> quit my actual paying job to take a month-long internship at Vogue, and then got a paid six-month internship at Harper's Bazaar. Was there on and off for a year, again on the features desk, but again, yeah. at a fashion magazine, even the features are fashion-y. Yeah. So, I mean, fashion has become a so much bigger topic. When I first started, it was definitely a little ghetto. A nice coat. I mean, it was easier in a way because it was like you had to do one page a week and that was it. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> there were, I think people still imagine there were a lot of lunches and breakfasts. And there I, are no lunches or breakfasts. When I was first interning, I remember bringing up in the good old days before the uh, anti-bribery laws, mulberry bags. Mulberry had sent, you know, 10 bags. This was when you were at Grazia, no? Yeah, yeah. And they'd sent a bag to each editor as a thank you. It was a Christmas gift. And I just thought one day, sadly, when my one day arrived, <laughs> the anti-bribery laws had uh, come round. But for anyone listening and panicking because they are studying fashion, I studied fashion. I did what Lisa says not to do. And I sort of did it by accident. Obviously, I wouldn't be prejudiced against someone who'd done fashion. <laughs> well, you I employed you. you. <laughs> I hired you and you were a great candidate. It is, it is a very niche thing to study. I do think it helped me in a lot of ways because basically I was at school and I, I wanted to go to Edinburgh to study English and I heard it was really hard to get into. And I went to a very competitive girls grammar school that was very Oxbridge geared and I just didn't have the self-confidence. So I didn't apply. I didn't apply anywhere. Mm-hmm. And UCAS closed for the year and I hadn't applied anywhere and it was too late. Art Foundation applications were open like three months longer. So I applied and I got onto an Art Foundation at St. Martin's. I just kind of fell into it in that way and found myself studying fashion communication at St. Martin's. We learned some photography, mostly journalism, and we studied fashion history a lot, which is the one thing that I think has been particularly useful. It was a foot through the door. So mm-hmm. they set you up. Not They didn't set you up with internships, but, you know, people... They would, showed you the ladder. And people would email our tutor and say, I need someone to help on this shoot. Yeah. And so I ended up, all my internships were were styling internships because you can't really help someone write a piece, not in fashion. You know, there's not the same legwork. And in fashion, generally, interns don't get to write. I mean, we I know we try and give our interns, mm. our, our longer term interns, pieces. But so I ended, I was doing styling internships. And I mean, some of them were god awful. And I was very much the generation of, you didn't get paid, you didn't even get travel, and you were grateful because it was that whole a million girls would kill to be mm. thing. And I believed it. And, you know, not that I regret it, because it turned into... So I was interning all through uni, and then it turned into a year internship at Grazia. And then I went for six months to Easy Living, which was an old Condé Nast I title. Love. And then to L went there for three weeks. That turned into a year internship, which turned into a permanent job. Charlie, it seems to me that you're very good about taking leaps you know, you came here to do maternity leave, which I would always be too anxious to do because you're giving up a solid job for something that may only last nine months or a year. Yeah. So it's always worked out for you, though. I mean, I was terrified. I was back at Grazia and I was the fashion features editor there. And this maternity cover came up, senior fashion editor at The Telegraph. And actually, when I came in to, to see you and it was it was a six months with the potential to extend, mm. because obviously you don't know how, mm. how long, you know, someone's going to want to take on mm. maternity leave. So Emily's probably going to want to da- dash back here immediately. <laughs> it was a scary leap. But I mean, obviously, now I'm glad I did it yeah. with the hindsight of, thank God you kept me. I do think it's brilliant now that internships are changing. I mean, obviously, people don't do the same unpaid internships and I think the the turning point was probably I think there was some was it somebody at Vogue who complained in the US there was a lawsuit at Hearst actually alleging like flagrant 
abuses towards unpaid interns and led to a lot of what we technically call in the, in the field ass covering, mm. um, <laughs> but also some genuine change. Well, I mean, there have been some egregious moments at Conning haven't there, when, you know, famously at, at British Vogue in the, in the early 80s, they would look at your postcode of your letter that you wrote in to tell, you know, to try and determine how posh you were and how, how rich mummy and daddy were. No way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I know, I know someone who went for an interview at Tatler and got asked where their parents went to school. <laughs> I mean, you'd puke if you didn't laugh, wouldn't you? I had one stylist who we weren't allowed to eat on set. So, uh, <laughs> name, name. <laughs> I can't. She's still, she's very successful and works in the industry as a freelancer, probably because no one would have her in an office. The assistants weren't allowed to eat. So we, Snuck bread rolls in now. Why weren't they allowed to eat? Ate them in the toilets. Because of crumbs on the set? No, or? I think it was a power thing because everyone else would sit down to lunch and we weren't invited to sit down to lunch. Right. Um, but also, she just, it was just a power thing for her. So yeah, we hid bread rolls and ate in the toilets. It's very chic. Hopefully that's now changing. I mean, I remember being at shows at 11 o'clock at night that were running an hour and a half behind times. And there was sort of uh, almost a badge of honour in the in the fashion industry that you would put up with crap, nonsense, diva nonsense, uh, because it's fashion and that's what you do. And But I think that is changing. I mean, OK, it's fine to work hard, but, you know, it, uh, being exploited is, is, is definitely not fine. Fashion Unzipped, in association with Tag Heuer. Excellence, precision and elegance. Our timepieces are designed for those who love challenges. So you've both worked at Vogue and other glossy magazines. I've worked at Elle. What did you think they were actually like? Because everyone assumes it's very bitchy and especially the fashion teams are very bitchy. Any truth in that? Well, I've got to say, I had a joyful time both times I was at Vogue. I was there, you know, I was there in in the early days as as a rookie then after I worked at The Independent for a couple of years and decided I never wanted to work on a newspaper again, I ha, 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 hot-footed it back to Vogue. I was heavily pregnant. I think I, my hormones were all over the place. I went back to Vogue about nine months pregnant and stayed seven years. Loved it, but yes, yes, it can, it can be a very... If you don't fit into the prevailing niche whatever it may be at that time, I think it's, it can be a very uncomfortable place. Or, you know, but this is a long time ago. I saw people come and go, come and go, come and go. If they didn't fit, if you did fit, then it was lovely. And you had this network of great women, very talented, very supportive. At that time, we were all having babies. And so that was lovely. So if your nanny rang you in the morning, you know, ill leaving the country or whatever what you know you could ring up one of your friends on vogue and say help me out and you and they would you know you'd pull nannies or whatever so that was lovely i very much enjoyed it but newspapers are just so much more fun you're treated like a grown-up you know you get to a newspaper and when i got to the times they pretty much ignored me having wooed me they then ignored me because the lovely editor of the times peter stoddart was actually a classicist and wouldn't have known a hem from a sleep. I mean, bless him. So he did. He just completely, having said to me, oh, it'll be marvellous. We're going to build up the fashion. I never saw him again, really. Actually, I bumped into him once in the in the lobby and he said, Lisa, what are you doing here? And I said, Peter, I work for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he said, oh, oh yes, yes, I know, I know. Uh, he said, but I didn't think you ever came into the office. And so this light bulb went on. I thought, why am I coming into the office? I'm going to do all this from home. But it's great because in being sort of ignored, you are given this incredible freedom to sneak all through the fissures and cracks. And the other thing was, in those days, fashion was very much looked down on by the blue stockings on the paper. Over the years while I was there, you know, I was given more and more and more to do. Because I think that was the thing. Back in the old days, maybe some fashion editors couldn't write. They might really have been more stylists or just grand dame. Not all of them. There are some brilliant ones from the, from the 60s. Um, and 70s. Uh, but, but you know, quite a few couldn't write. So, But then there was this new generation of fashion editors who could really write. And once the, the powers that be on the newspapers clocked that, they gave us everything to do. Everything. Interestingly, when I told the team what we were going to be talking about in this podcast today, and I was asking uh, some of the younger team, you know, what would you want to know from Lisa, top of her game, about how she got into... And interestingly, they raised Instagram and they said, do you look at, because when when they go for jobs, people ask what their Instagram handle is and people look at A, what they have been doing, what their aesthetic is, but also B, have they got enough followers? Are they enough of a personality? And it's not something I had to, you know, when I was first Mm. applying for jobs, no one was on Instagram. I don't think it came into being when I was first employed, I think. But Emily, did you have to be a personality when you were first writing or was it I felt I had I had to make a decision between being an observer and a participant and I remember very early in my career I interviewed Mary Portis and asked for her advice and she said something I've always remembered which is you work in luxury you don't live in luxury so I I was always very comfortable with the idea that I would you know go to these do's and these fashion shows and events and and kind of rub shoulders with fabulous people but that I was very clear that I wasn't one of them, that I was going home in the tube to Finchley at the end mm-hmm. of it, you know, not not the horse and carriage to the palace or whatever. On that note, you know, I, I sort of didn't feel pressure to wear everything that I saw on the runway and, and create a, a persona, like a public persona. That happened while I was really starting my career. And I remember being very uncomfortable for a while, thinking, wait a second, am I now supposed to be in front of, of the camera as well as writing about things like I'm a writer I'm not a I'm not a fashion plate and that was probably an error because we've seen now people build huge profiles and and livelihoods on putting themselves very much in the frame when I started at Vogue you were not allowed to use the first person you never put the word I into an article it was all about being an observer mm. spool forward 15 years and there I am in the times every week poncing around in front of a camera modeling clothes that was weird and when we still we do it here sometimes don't we and I I think gosh that's that's quite a big ask and I know if we got to be able to write 3,000 word interview with me at Prada but we've kind of got to sort of I mean obviously we're not models but we've kind of got to look presentable in a frock in front of a, a camera we journalists feel that we have to do it all we're doing Instagram and Twitter and long form and hosting podcasts yes yeah that's the fun <laughs> bit the podcast I think I found it quite freeing when and I think it's probably just coming out of my 20s and being just a tad less self-involved. I'm still heavily self-involved, obviously, as we all no doubt are. But I just suddenly felt like, oh, no one's actually expecting me when I go to Fashion Week to be photographed. 
it. I don't have to. Do you, do you, you see, I, because I, no, I always wanted to, it's a, it's a race, isn't it? And some people really dress mm, mm. just for that. And actually you see lots of people who aren't even going to the shows and they just dress up each yes. day to come. And stand outside. And stand outside and hopefully have their picture taken. And when I was, you know, 23, to have someone asked to take my picture was just, oh, great. You know, that I'm not as bad as I thought I was. And I, you know, my clothes aren't as awful. And, you know, I didn't have designer clothes either. So it was, it was that, you know, you belong here. And then it was really freeing to me to be like, oh, well, you know, actually, you either get your picture taken because you look ridiculous and like a caricature, a caricature mm. of a fashion person and you've, you know, put on bonkers stuff or you get your picture taken because you're really beautiful and tall and probably slim and are wearing designer clothes that I can't afford. Well, yeah, Joan Didion, um, who was also in Features on Vogue at a very different time in a different country, um, wrote that it was like being the piano player in a whorehouse. Exactly. No one's there to see you. Yeah. And I always felt comforted by that. So did I. Thought, you could kind of get on with your own work. I remember Sarah Jane Hall, which, who was one of the most amazingly talented but high-maintenance fashion directors ever, who was then at Vogue when I first went. We were talking about what clothes we were taking to the shows, and she turned to me and she said, you, no one will be looking at you. And like you, I thought, few, few. And so, you know, as you progress through the rows... And people are, they are looking at you. I mean, even pre-Instagram, by the way. You know, people say, oh, it's so much worse under Instagram. And of course it is in some ways because you do get all these people wearing ridiculous outfits and blocking your entrance as they get photographed by God knows who. People were always looking at what you were wearing. Before there, were, there was Instagram, you know, the fashion director of American Vogue was looking at what the fashion director of British Harper's Bazaar was wearing because it was... Would I ever employ this person? Do they have the right taste level? Oh, are they getting paid more than I have? What what handbag have they been given? You know, there was endless, endless scrutiny. What I would like to ask, practical advice, what what did you wear for job interviews? Do you remember? Or first days? What did you do? I can do you tell remember? you what I wore for my Vogue talent competition portrait because I, I agonized over it. Do. What did you wear? I wore a, a black pencil skirt that had a very smart satin waistband and a black vest tucked in and like got a manicure and just had big hair and and felt like if I can't wear the right labels I should just keep it simple and wear black and like have a nice silhouette and also ask the photographer to please 90% my body <laughs> and and it's uh, still the most flattering portrait I've ever had taken I think but yeah I, I think you can't get wrong if you stick with neutrals and make sure that everything is clean and pressed and I think when I was younger, I always felt like, because I didn't have designer labels, that I, I should. And people, I'd walk into a room and they would notice that I didn't own the right handbag or the right. So I remember actually, not not that long ago for my Grazia interview, when I came back to Grazia, I bought an Isabel Morant suede jacket that was in a sale. So it, it was like super markdown. It's not, it's not very flattering. It's kind of got rounded shoulders and it's a bit, I mean, I've worn it about twice, probably. It's still in my wardrobe. But cost me 200 odd quid, which I didn't really have. But I just thought if I wear this jacket, then they'll remember who I am. And it's probably a stupid thing. Well, one of our former colleagues here, Carla, told me that when she was interviewing, she kind of looked up the editor she was interviewing with and, and chose to wear flats, thinking it would appeal to that editor's sensibility. And she got the job. Well, I think that's, that is the great, the huge advantage now of social media. You can kind of kind of have a look at their their aesthetic but I think the other thing is when you're young and you can't afford those labels 
And also, there's a huge danger that you might go to the Grazia interview thinking, oh, they're all really into mulberry bags. I'm going to beg still or borrow a mulberry bag and then find that that was terribly last season. So don't do that. But honestly, just, just go in something that looks great on you, that's flattering. Because unless you're going for a very fashion victim publication, actually what they want to know is that you've got an eye and good taste and that you don't, that you don't look a mess, right? And, and also a lot of the most senior fashion editors have a personal uniform and where I mean very high-end versions generally but wear a white shirt and black Mm -hmm. jeans and black belly pumps day in day out Lisa Emily thank you for joining me and thank you everyone else for joining us please subscribe to the podcast if you liked what you heard and give us a five-star review it will help other people to find us check back soon for another episode of Fashion Unzipped Fashion Unzipped, in association with Tag Heuer, Swiss avant-garde since 1860.